On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, we are going to be talking about reviving, resuscitating an extinct species. Scientists in Australia are trying to do that. We'll get into that. We're going to talk about kids and their anxieties and mental health from COVID. More and more numbers pouring in about this all the time. Area rating, transit area rating, big issue in Hamilton. Should everyone pay the same for transit in this city? We're going to be chatting about where COVID goes in the fall, where the predictions are. We're going to be going to the Dundas Cactus Fest and we're going to be going to the moon. Yes, right here on Good Morning Hamilton, we are going to the moon in a manner of speaking. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Children and the effect that COVID and the pandemic and social distancing and not being at school and all those things have had on their mental health. A new study from LifeWorks has found 56% of parents have noticed that their children's mental health and development has worsened over the last couple of years. And then you can break it down even further. 27% have noticed that their children having anxiety about the future. 24% noticing a decline in social development. 23% reporting a decline in academic development. As I say, there's a lot of people who are going to be saying, well, yeah, we've known this. We've seen this. This is simply now going to be giving some tangible numbers to what we have been experiencing. Paul Allen is global leader and senior vice president in research and total well-being with, uh, with LifeWorks. She joins us now. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, pleasure to be here. As I say, uh, I think you, what these numbers that you've put together, I, I, I think for a lot of people, this is going to simply be validating what they've been thinking all along with their own kids. It's true, but what, one of the main things, and um, one of the main reasons why we do this is to make people not take things for granted. I mean, you were saying, okay, of course this is happening. Well, it's happening. It's important. We need to do something about it. And with our children, one of the great things is, you know, even though they're impacted by all the change and the uncertainty and the, the, the isolation, in particular the isolation, they are malleable which means that, you know, we've gone through a difficult time. We can help them uh, go through the next step much more positively. But what we can't do is do nothing and just expect it to go away. What about that, though? Because, I mean, this is obviously the fear that parents would have, that, you know, these effects, I'm seeing these effects on my kids. They're always going to be there now. My kid is permanently damaged. Is is that an overstatement then? Do we believe that, yeah, maybe, you know, it's it's going on right now, but it's not necessary. it doesn't have to necessarily be a permanent thing? Absolutely doesn't have to necessarily be a permanent thing. One of the things that's really important is that kids feel a sense of security. Uh, and we've gone through a period where we had a lot of change. We had a lack of predictability. We had all the things that the human mind doesn't like. Uh, and, I, and I called out isolation because that's a big thing. You know, if parents want to take the, most, the best possible steps, introduce your kids back to the routine that they had. Make sure that they know that you are in a good place. And also, very importantly, pay attention to when you see those little behavior, behavior changes, the things that put that little bird in the back of your mind that says, well, this is really not the way I would like it to be, or this is not the way, more importantly, this is not the way my children, child normally is and have a conversation. Very often, kids have things in their minds, and they're acting based on those things. And those things, those pieces of information might not even be correct. But you'll never even know them unless you have that conversation. And and also, just 
showing interest in your kids. You know, how are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? That'll never have a negative effect. It just shows that they're important to you. I mean, as you're talking, one of the things that I'm thinking, so you're saying introduce them back. If you introduce a child who is struggling or having anxiety, whatever, back into a social setting filled with lots of other children who are also having anxiety or having struggles, is it really a return to normal? I'm just wondering if, because if you, if you had one that you could put into a pool of many who were not, you would like to believe that that one would be immersed in sort of return. But if, if so many of the kids are all struggling, do they not exacerbate all their struggles together? It's possible, but I think the most thing, the thing to pay attention to is what's going on with your own child. You know, they, they go back into an environment that is one way or another way. You know, really look at their, their response. And sometimes parents have to think of something called progressive exposure. So it's not everything all at once. You're not going back to, you know, the every five minutes in your, in your day being scheduled. Uh, but you're doing things that are going to mm. give your kids a positive experience. And if the experience isn't positive, then again, find out why, make sure it doesn't get blown out of, uh, out of control in their own minds, and then try again. Uh, but having contact with other kids, being social and being confident when you're social and if you have anxieties, having the confidence and having the, the, the support around you so you talk about it, you just don't hold it inside yourself, it's a very positive thing. The report says that the ages between 10 and 14, the kids who are between 10 and 14 have experienced the worst effects on their mental health during this time. Any theory why that particular group has been most affected? Well, think about that age group. That's just when you're getting into the period of time where your friends become a bit more important in your day-to-day experience than your, 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 your parents. So, you know, younger than that, your parents are your whole world. You know, you have your friends, you enjoy your friends, but really the anchor is your parents. And then as you move into early and, and, and later adolescence, you're sort of moving into a different type of environment. You're moving into a different type of mindset. So to hold, have all of that disrupted in this kind of mini change of life, that's a little bit harder. Uh, but again, I really want to make sure that, that parents understand we have all been through major disruption. You know, we, we've all gone through the change in the isolation and all those things. To have it not knock you a little bit off balance would be unusual. It doesn't mean that you won't go back to how you were or even stronger. But one of the things that I really want people to know is that you as a parent don't have to do this by yourself. If you're not sure about what's, what's going on, if you have concerns, if you're not sure about, you know, even how you might apply some of the things that I'm taking, that I'm saying, or you don't think it would work for you, reach out and ask for some help. You know, if you're employed, you, you likely have an employee assistance program that would provide coaching or counseling for you, for your child, or for you just to help you understand what to do. And very often, it isn't very much that you need. It's just that little bit of extra support. And if you do need more, or if your child does need more, then better not to wait. Uh, like I said, children are very, very malleable, but the earlier you deal with something, the better the outcome will be. Paul Allen, Global Leader and Senior Vice President at LifeWorks, really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I hope it remains a good morning for the next month or two or three or four because we're heading into the fall and there are people who are nervous. Not about going back to school per se, about what's going to happen with COVID. When we start getting back indoors and back close together again, are we heading back into more problems? want to bring in Dr. Rose Zachariah. She is president of the Ontario Medical Association. I'm guessing she has some theories on this. Uh, Doctor, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. It's good to be here. So when we do begin to go back inside and begin to be in close quarters in school or work or wherever else, have we passed the point where we have to worry about another wave of COVID or is that on the horizon? So, you know, we are in a fundamentally different place than when the pandemic began. Remember back in March 2020, how much uncertainty there was. Certainly, we were not vaccinated back then, and uh, and we just didn't know a lot about the virus. But we have two and a half years worth of public health data. Our public health experts are reminding us that vaccines are the most effective and safe way to head into another potential wave or a new variant of the virus. Uh, It's also flu season, so we need to get caught up on our flu shots. And also kids have not got all their routine back-to-school immunizations, so they need to get caught up on those as well. So all key things that we need to keep in mind as we head back to school. You just touched on a bunch of things. Let's try and go through the one by one here. You mentioned about the variants. If, if the if we were to have another wave or another push, I guess, of, of COVID, but it was the same variants that we've seen, is that okay? Are we prepared for that? I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking the concern would be some new variant that we don't have any preparation or immunity against. So we've been able to follow the virus. We know that Still, at this point, our current vaccines are the most effective and safe way to prepare ourselves for the virus. Also, the public health uh, advice that we've had all along, such as monitoring for symptoms, staying home if you're sick, also washing your hands. And, and when you're, we don't have a mask mandate right now, but when you're in a public place that's got a bit of a crowd and especially some older, maybe more vulnerable people, wearing a mask is still a good idea. So these are all key things to keep in mind. You think people will though? Because I wonder if we've reached a point where now that we've gotten back used to pretty much normal, if you or some other expert were to say, oh, by the way, throw those masks back on when you go in public, I'm not sure people are going to listen now. You know, I've been really heartened, especially by the vaccine uptake amongst the Ontario population. Um, We are really one, uh, we are a leader uh, there, although kids ages 5 to 11 are a little bit behind in their COVID series. And uh, and I I mean, I I work in the emergency department, I take public transit, and I, I show up at my office. And I see people still coming to work, making that calculated choice to put a mask on. And so I've been really heartened by the the compliance and the cooperation. And it really is how we are now at this state. We're going back to school. Our kids are going to be back in class. And we're able to gather and plan those weddings and, um, and the gatherings that we have. So we have so much back at this stage of the pandemic. And holding on to that requires us to still follow public health advice. The one thing that we have become incredibly used to over the last, well, two and a half years or whatever, is that anytime there's positive news, bad news is sure to follow not far behind. And I don't know if this qualifies, but you mentioned the flu. Uh, Australia, South Africa 
have had bad flu seasons already. Some people are saying this is just a precursor to what we're going to see here. Is it? So this is the first year that the pandemic began uh, in Canada that we are balancing COVID and the regular flu season. And so we watch our neighbor countries in the southern hemisphere, such as Australia and South Africa, to see what did they experience in their winter and what can we expect. And so they had a short but uh, but a bad flu season during their winters. And so what often happens there is a good indication of how we need to be prepared. So our best protection against both COVID and the flu is getting vaccinated. Well, and, you know, there have been people who pointed out that over the last couple of years, probably because of distancing, probably because of wearing masks, probably because of washing our hands, there were almost no cases of the flu in Canada. And I mean, there were a handful, but nothing, nothing compared to other years. Can that continue? Or, or again, if we, if we keep the same habits, would that continue? Or is there something in the strain of the flu that even if we were to wear a mask or wash our hands, we're still going to get it? So we know viruses, I mean, we understand the nature of viruses. They spread more quickly uh, and easily when we're indoors, right? So here comes the fall. Uh, it feels like summer just started, but it's nearly mm-hmm. over. But here comes the fall, and we're going to be back inside. Our kids going to be sitting in a classroom, and we're going to be back in our in our workplaces where we want to be to thrive and you know re-enter society and participate that way. It's so good for our health and well-being, and for our kids as well. I've got kids; they're really excited to go back to school. But what we have in our toolkit this time around is vaccines that are publicly funded, that are offered, and we can get caught up on that series of especially kids ages 5 to 11 are a bit behind. Also, kids need to be back to their routine school immunizations. We don't want things like measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis, and polio, these diseases that have been eradicated to reemerge, and so vaccines are going to prevent against that. And while families were dealing with the crisis of COVID, we didn't get um, caught up on those vaccines like we usually would when school starts. And so the routine school immunizations, getting the flu shot, and also caught up on your COVID vaccines is really going to see us in good stead to get back to school and back to work in the hybrid way that we have been now for even this past summer. Dr. Rose Zacharias, President of the Ontario Medical Association. Thank you so much for the time today. You're welcome. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There may not be two words that cause more eyes to glaze over when you just say them than area rating. It's like, oh. But when you start talking about it with people, you realize that people have strong, strong opinions on it when they really get the idea. What what area rating is basically is when the city was amalgamated, different parts of the city pay different rating rates, different taxes for different services because some had more services than other. And so if you were not getting the same service, you didn't pay as much tax. Simple. And over the years, it's pretty much been melded in most of these areas, except the big one that still hasn't is transit. And now the amalgamated transit or the, sorry, the Hamilton Transit Riders Union is pushing with an election coming up, asking for all council candidates and all mayoral candidates to promise that if elected, they will eliminate area rating. So all parts of the city now would pay the same amount for transit. I want to bring in Carl Andrus. He is a steering committee member with the Hamilton Transit Riders Union. He joins us now. Carl, thanks for the time today. I, I really appreciate the uh, chance to, to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So well, I just clarify a little bit. So when we're yes, talking please. 
Yeah, transit area rating. What we're talking about is basically a 20-year-old legacy that's been left over where some urban parts of the city pay way more for transit, while some er other urban parts of the city have the what transit service they do get subsidized. So basically, wards 1 through 8 and parts of 14 are paying for the, the transit in the urban areas that Flamborough, Ancaster, Glenbrook, and Stony Creek get. So um, I don't think anybody wants to, uh, to end area rating for rural areas right away. But Hamilton is very unique. We have a bizarre situation. There's no other examples in Ontario where urban residents pay different rates for transit. And what that means is we've ended up with two tiers of transit service, where we have relatively good transit in the parts of the old city I mentioned, one through eight and wards 14. And then we have those urban areas in Flamborough, Dundas, Ancaster, Glanbrook, and Stony Creek that have very poor service, but aren't paying the same rates as the rest of the uh, urban areas of the city. So I just wanted to clarify that one of the, the challenges with this is we have a system that's very unique. In other cities, you have an urban rate for transit and you have a rural rate for transit. And I don't think anybody expects that, uh, you know, rural Flamborough out in the farms is probably going to see a bus for the next 20 years. And there's probably not an expectation that in the next four or five years that rural Flamborough out by the farms is going to pay for transit. But maybe downtown Flamborough, that's an economic growth area, might want to have transit so that more people can visit there, so that more cars can be taken off off the road. As you know, the better transit is, the more people choose it instead of driving, the less cars there are on the road because buses hold, frankly, a lot more people than a single-use vehicle. Carl, is the uh, is the position then that if this transit area rating was removed and everybody paid the same, that that would translate into everyone getting equal service that so if we if we if Ancaster for example pays more and right now they don't have the same service if they pay more there will be more buses in Ancaster therefore the transit will be better therefore everyone will be happy so there's there's two ways to approach the deleting the, the of the well, there's three different options that the city's presented one is that basically we keep transit the same we lower taxes for wars one through 14 who've been overpaying for years and then jack the taxes up for everybody else um across across the rest of the city um, ending that imbalance I was talking about where the, the the wards 1 through 8 and 14 subsidize the transit that the other areas get. Um, that would that would re require the, basically the average tax for residents in wards 1 through 8 to drop by $111, but increase dramatically for the rest of the city and get no new transit. Or we keep the transit rates the same. We don't lower the taxes for the old city of Hamilton. We charge a little bit more on in the urban areas, not those rural areas. Again, I want to be very clear, the urban right, areas right. are built up. And then we, we plow that money into new drivers and expanded transit service into those areas. And that seems to be, and that's what the transit riders believe, because we have a lot of riders who who struggle to use the transit in Ancaster to get out to the power center or out to Stony Creek or out to, even to the airport growth area in order to get to work because there's inadequate transit service to get to those jobs. So I think that that's the most reasonable position and one that everybody, frankly, who's running for council should take. The tendency in, in the political systems for 22 years has been to just kick this can down the road to say this is impossible, we can't tackle it, and quite frankly, we need bold leadership from those who are going to be mayor and those who are going to be council to kind of tackle this problem because transit's never going to get better unless we deal with the area rating question. 
What about the idea that there are a lot of people in Stony Creek, in Dundas, in Flamborough and Ancaster who really don't want this and they're saying, you know, don't increase my taxes more because I'm not going to use transit. We don't, it's not convenient and we don't frankly believe it ever is going to get better because we've never seen evidence that it's going to get better or has gotten better. And that's the chicken and the egg problem that we've been stuck with for 22 years. And until we have someone with the wherewithal, the leadership to say, well, then what we need to do is at least address the urban imbalance. Like, it's unfair that wards one through eight and 14 are subsidizing the transit that those areas do get um, to the tune of $111 on the average rate payer in the old city of Hamilton and those parts of 14. And I think that's grotesquely unfair, too. So what happens next term of council, say, we get a majority of, of councillors that are in the urban area and they say, you know what, wards one through eight and 14, we're sick of this imbalance anyway. We're going to jack the taxes way up on you guys and not give you better transit service. So I think there's a conversation to be had that we have to build better transit and we either continue to put that burden on wards one through eight and 14 and, and get them to carry it while they, we expand transit a little bit piecemeal, which is what some candidates for mayor have proposed. Um, and then continue to spread that tax burden unfairly on some of, let's face it, the most poor wards in the city, especially in the lower city, to carry that burden. Or we can tack it up equitably over a couple of years and really build up and out that transit service. And then people can start seeing that net dividend because it's it's not a huge hit to the average tax base. Um, we're, we're talking about dollars a month here. Um, one example was there could have been an expansion to... Uh, <clears throat> To out to Ancaster that would have added $20 a month to the average rate payers rate that would have seen key service out to the Ancaster areas. So I think it's a question of we have to, to look at a different city. We've got a firm urban boundary now. More people are going to be being built in the area. That means either more cars or better public transit. And the problem that we have is that in the, within the firm urban boundary area, there's no room for more roads. So it, if and if we don't move those people from their cars into transit, our roads are going to get more congested. The link is going to get more congested. The Red Hill Valley Parkway is going to get more congested. And so that we run into this is ever increasing problem. Whereas if we expand that transit into those areas in the urban area, then people may choose to not have to have a second mm. car in their home. And that's a huge savings for folks where they go, you know what? I actually can do most of the things that I need to do with just one car in our household now. It's, our- uh, it, Carl, I got to I gotta jump in, Carl. It's a really interesting discussion. We'll be having this one, I'm sure, as the election gets closer and closer. But uh, Carl Anders on the steering committee for the Hamilton Transit Riders Union. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Right now, I want to go to John Balog, who's entertainment director of the Dundas Cactus Fest, who joins us. John, how are you this morning? Great, sir. How are you this morning? Could not be better, although maybe not as good as you guys, because as I was just saying, I mean, this has been the challenge of challenges for people putting on festivals for the last number of years. Finally, you get to get back to some kind of normal. And I'll tell you, we're ready to go, Scott. I hope everybody comes down this weekend. The weather's looking great. We've got a great lineup on four stages, tons of stuff to do for the family, and it's all free. And we were just playing to bring into the segment. I I love who you've got on the main stage on Saturday night at 9 o'clock. David Wilcox is... David's done a great job over my 50-year career, and he's coming back to do it again. Don't forget, we also have the box on Friday night. We had a ton of hits. Yes, yes. We got the practically hip opening for the box. We got Tim Gibbons and the Swamp Busters opening for David Wilcox. 
I mean, we've got a telestage with a ton of cultural performances and dances, presentations. Uh, we've got a homegrown emerging artist stage for all the new groups and discoveries we've had and made in Hamilton and the area for the last years. Family fun zone, tons of stuff, singing, dancing, drumming. We've got reptiles. Uh, we have a uh, teddy bears picnic early on uh, Saturday morning. Uh, it's just, uh, it's going to be a fantastic weekend. Fantastic weekend. When you've gone through what you have for the last couple of years and everything, as I say, was sort of thrown into disarray, when you come back to normal, is it easy to get acts back because they're all just dying to get going or because everything has been uncertain? Is it more difficult to get started again? Well, to be quite honest with you, everybody was uh, dying to work, I, I mean, including myself. I mean, we did a couple of festivals that were um, um, virtual festivals, but the, the essence of the live crowd just isn't there. And yeah, the entertainers are all stoked. Everybody been dealing with these guys for 30, 40, 50 years, and everybody is just ready to light like a match. Well, and, and this is the time of year, right? There's so many festivals. I mean, whether it's the CNE in Toronto, the big one, or all these other ones, like it's just, it's the time of year when people are, they're used to doing this. They want to do this. They're in a mood to be doing this kind of stuff. Well, and the Cactus Festival is so unique because it's like the whole street of Dundas. So you walk in on one side and you end at the end where the kids' family fun zone is. And, I mean, we got that, that fun zone that we've got up there. It's a Fortino's family fun zone at King and Market. Man, I'll tell you, we got a ton of stuff there. We've got an illusionist this year on uh, Friday night. Uh, we got, like I said, the teddy bear picnic on Saturday morning. Is just like our response. We had uh, online, uh, uh, you know, the invitation out, and all the people that responded is just amazing. We got eighty vendors, Robertson's amusement rides. I mean, uh, it's going on. It's going to be a Nintendo Switch summer experience. Nintendo in Dundas downtown on King Street. It'll be phenomenal. Have you heard, I mean, there's no way to really know how many people are going to come. You can't, it's it's free, so you're not selling tickets to come down there. But have you heard from people that what we're talking about, that everyone is just eager to get back to normal and this is, this is one of the ways to do it? Well, I'll tell you, Scott, we're involved in a number of uh, um, associations and uh, other, we belong to a large co-op of fest festival initiatives and the festivals that have gone on already this year are reporting back, uh, some of them 20, 40, 50 percent increases over the past years. So that's a pretty big green flag to me that tells us we are going to be packed from one end of Dundas to the other. And could I give you an estimate of how many people are going to be there? Would uh, love it. We're going to probably have to count everybody and divide by two. <laughs> All right, and for just for the record, this is a question that some people already know the answer to, but there are others who every year say, why in the heck is a festival in Dundas called the Cactus Festival? Just for those who don't know, take it away and tell us the origin of the name. Well, the Valhaus Nursery, which was in Dundas for years, initiated the Cactus Festival because they grew small ornamental cactuses. And what 
but agree with a perm what you do in an area uh, like this in south uh, southern Ontario, who we really have one native cactus here, believe it or not, because we're in the Carolinian forest tip. But the Valdau's Nursery initiated this. They grew all these little tiny cactuses, and uh, that's where it was born, the Cactus Festival. I guess they thought, what are we going to do with all these miniature cactuses? And they initiated cactus uh, <laughs> being, Dundas being the cactus capital of the world. <laughs> of course it is, naturally. Of course it's the and cactus the capital of the world. they were the largest producers of uh, small cacti in Canada. It is uh, running from the 19th to the 21st. As I say, great lineups. Uh, my favorite, I'll be there for David Wilcox on Saturday. Uh, listen, really appreciate it, John. John Balog, Entertainment Director for the Cactus Fest. Thanks, John. Fantastic. Thanks again, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. NASA has moved into position its new rocket that is going to be taking off in a couple of weeks to go to the moon. And not landing on the moon. This is going to be orbiting the moon for a while. Not anyone on board. It's a test towards eventually within a couple of years putting someone or some people on the moon again for the first time in 50 years give or take. Uh, Dr. Jesse Rogerson is a favorite on here. He is a professor at York University, teaches things like the history of astronomy and exploring the solar system and other good stuff. He joins us now. Doctor, thank you for this. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good to, good to chat with you. How is us going back to the moon not getting more attention? Is it just because we've already done this and so it's sort of, uh, yeah, whatever, tell me when we're there and I'll wake up again? <laughs> You know, I was wondering the same thing just a few days ago, actually about a week ago, because the, the Artemis One mission, that's the mission you're talking about, where they're going to launch this massive rocket, like akin to those, those that know the Apollo program back in the 60s and 70s, this, that big, huge, tall Saturn V rocket with the little tiny lunar module on top launching from Florida. That's what we're talking about here, right? They're, they've already rolled it out to the launch pad, the Artemis One. And they're and they're targeting August the end of the end of the month basically August 29th August 30th for uh, this test launch, and and it's literally going to the moon. It's not just like launching the rocket into space to see if the rocket works. It's, they're they're doing a full uncrewed test mission all the way to the moon, and they're going to be orbiting the moon for at least five or six days. Uh, so we're talking like we're going to get some serious up close images and measurements yes. of the moon. This is this is no small feat. I, I also, I, I've thought the same thing. I don't know why this isn't getting more attention. This is very similar to the build-up to the Apollo program, where they were testing out the Saturn V and getting it moving. Now, maybe the reason, Scott, that it's not getting as much um, attention is not because we're, you know, we're like blasé about it, but maybe because there's no humans on board. I think, like, if you, if you look across, like, what NASA, uh, the CSA, and the ESA do on a yearly basis, annually... We do some pretty cool projects, but if there's no humans involved, it tends to get less, I don't know, less media coverage, I guess I would say. So, you you know, there's a mission launched last year where they went off to an asteroid, the DART mission, or uh, missions off to Jupiter, something like that. If it's a robotic mission, I think it gets a little bit less media attention. But when you get humans involved, then it really starts kicking up a notch. So I think maybe, I think you'll see the media attention really really, uh, I don't know, skyrocket, <laughs> uh, no pun intended, to near August 20th, August tw- uh, sorry, August 29th, when the test is about to go, and maybe when we get a couple of the images back, but then we'll be looking forward to, I think we're going to see huge, huge um, crowds and people and um, excitement 
near the next launch. Uh, well, and one of two. And one of the real ironies here, and you know, we're looking forward. We're trying to do something that hasn't been done necessarily, and yet if they could send back a photo of all the pictures that they could take on the moon, if they could send back a photo of the residue or the the stuff that was left from the Apollo 11 that was first on the moon, I bet that would be the picture people would want to see most. What's still there? You know there? what? Um, there's a, so there's a, a spacecraft, a robotic spacecraft orbiting the moon right now called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's a NASA project, a NASA spacecraft. It's been there for quite a long time. And it has... Uh, pretty much mapped all of the landing places. And you can go and you can actually see that the resolution is so good. Not only can you see the spacecraft, like the, the Eagle um, from Apollo 11, but you can also see all the foot traffic, all the like little pathways wow. they made, Buzz and, and um, Armstrong, as they were walking around and some of the stuff they left. And they have it for the other ones too. So we do have those images and, and they did get some pretty good um, attention. I don't know when they did that, uh, a few years ago maybe, so it, they are really, really cool to look at. And people have even gone into those images and traced it back to the mission logs. And, like, you can actually follow along the mission and watch where they go at hmm. what time and, like, in real time. Pretty cool stuff. What happens, look, we, we expect good things. Um, we expect that this will all go off without a hitch. But we also know that, you know, the Challenger happened and other things. If, if this mm-hmm. unmanned rocket <clears throat> were to have something go wrong with it, does this simply delay the idea of going back to the moon or would this kill that whole project because then everybody would say it's just not worth it? You know, that's a good question. I think that there's almost nothing that could kill this project. And I say that with a little bit of cynicism and a little bit of love at the same time. And the reason I say it is because this project is, it's, it originally was called the Space Launch System, SLS. And it was like ramping up in the early 2000s because the goal for it was to take over um, from the shuttle program. When the shuttle program was um, canceled, uh, sort of 2010, 2011, the, they needed another rocket. Now, it's, we still don't have this rocket flying, so as you can tell, it's a, the project has overrun its time. It's overrun its budget by a very large amount, and it, it, they've, they've slipped for a decade, basically. When I say that, um, clearly nothing is going to cancel it. If you're going to go over by billions of dollars in a project... Um, one one small failure now, I don't think is going to is going to cancel the project. But definitely, if something went wrong with this uncrewed mission to the moon, then it would push back the crewed mission that's planned for 2024, which would be a very similar mission as this one. Artemis one is launching this month, and then Artemis two would launch in 2024. Very similar missions, similar mission profiles, same idea, except with people on board. So that would get pushed back for sure. The that and that would be a shame because the I think one of the greatest parts about this story not only are we going to the moon but a Canadian's going. Right, so, and you know what? If we push it back much further, then William Shatner won't be able to fly on it. So um, <laughs> you know, there's uh, uh, Jesse Rogerson from York University. We always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Almost 100 years ago. A creature known as the Tasmanian tiger went extinct. 1936, apparently, was when the last one died and the species was gone. Well, now some scientists in Australia are talking about and working towards possibly resurrecting this extinct species, bringing it back to life somehow. 
How? Well, let's bring in Andrew Pask, who's a professor at the University of Melbourne, who joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. No problem. Happy to be here. This is such an interesting idea, and, and I, I must say, and you've probably heard this before, as soon as I read this, all I could think about was Jurassic Park and, and what they were doing. <laughs> as I say, you've probably heard that before, but they did it in you know a movie way. Is this really a possible thing to do, to bring back an extinct animal? It is. So, you know, I'll set everybody's mind at ease that you can't do it for dinosaurs because there's no DNA left <laughs> in dinosaur specimens. So we don't have to worry about velociraptors and T-Rex. But for recently extinct animals like this one that went extinct 86 years ago, it's a very real possibility. So it, I would assume then, and look, I, I, I know nothing about this. I would assume you need to have had some part of one of these still in existence to be able to extract the DNA, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So because they're, they're really beautiful animals, you know, they had tiger stripes, they looked like a wolf, but they were a marsupial. So they had a pouch and had joeys in their pouch, just like kangaroos and other marsupials do. Um, so because they were so unusual, they, are, uh, they, were, they were put into museum collections across the whole world. So they're all over Canada, the US, Europe, Australia, obviously, we have a lot of them. But there's lots of samples of them. So we were able to go out and sample all that material and actually sequence their entire genome. So we were able to get every single little bit of their genetic code of how to build a thylacine. And that's what really underpins then this whole project that we have that so we can actually think about bringing them back so and again it's such a complicated thing and i'm glad you can explain this once you get that code how do you actually turn it back into something living though what do you do where do yeah. you put that how, how does that happen yeah so we still can't create life where there is none so we can't resurrect you know that tissue or those specimens from a museum and bring those cells back to life so the way that the extinction works is that you have to find the closest living relative to the animal that you want to bring back. So in the case of this guy, the closest living relative is a small little mouse-sized marsupial called a fat-tailed dunnart. And then once you identify who that, that relative is, we've got living tissues we can grow from them, so we can grow cells from those animals. And then we compare their genome. So we compare our extinct animal genome with the living animal genome. We look at everywhere that they're different, and then we go into those living cells and we edit or we change that DNA to now be what it was like in that extinct species. So we're basically engineering that cell to now be a Tasmanian tiger cell. And then once you've got that cell, we can use stem cell technologies and things like cloning to turn that cell back into a whole living animal. It is, I mean, it is such a fascinating concept. And yet I can't, even as you're talking, I can't help but think, the fact that we can perhaps do this, it's a question always that goes with medical ethics and scientific ethics. Should we be? Because could this open the door to other people who want to say, well, that we could do it there so we can do it here. Is there a concern about where this leads somewhere? Yeah, I think we have to apply any of these sorts of technologies very carefully, right? We have to really think about when do we want to use them I think this animal is a particularly good candidate for de-extinction. You know, it was a human-hunted animal. We drove it to extinction really brutally, actually, back in 1936. So it was completely wiped out by humans. It's an animal that we have very good intact DNA for, so we can do a very good job of bringing it back. And its environment still exists in Tasmania. So when we bring that animal back, there's some way that we can put it straight back into that ecosystem. And it has all the animals and things that it used to eat and interact with that's still living in that ecosystem. The other thing it did is as an apex predator, one of those animals that sits at the top of the food chain, 
it was actually really critical for conserving all the animals that live beneath it in that food web. And when you lose those apex predators, you throw that whole system out of balance. So there's a lot of really good reasons for bringing that particular animal back. But the other reality of doing this sort of DNA engineering is the, the how rapidly we're changing the globe at the moment with things like global warming, you know, and deforestation and losing animal habitats. We're going to have to step in at some point and start to help our animals adapt and evolve to some of these situations. So there's lots of examples where editing some genes might help some animals survive in a high climate, or it might help them survive certain pests or diseases that we've now introduced into those species. So I think we're going to be faced with the question of either losing more biodiversity and losing more species, or stepping in with these sorts of technologies to help where we can. Is there a is there a human application for this? Because, you know, we always hear about, you know, there are, uh, we, we don't hear about it being done, but we've heard people say, you know, if you've got someone who's an amazing athletic specimen, you know, a person who does, what if we could somehow clone them? What if we could take their DNA and have someone be like them? Is, the, is this the kind of thing, yeah. could this apply to a human? Could you do that with a human to extend a family line or something where it's died out? Yeah, well, people are, you know, they've already looked at using the DNA editing technology to get rid of some of the disease uh, yes. genes that yep. we have in our genome, things like cystic fibrosis and other things, so they can do it that way. But with human cloning, you know, we would we, we can do that now, right? People, are, we've got all the techniques. It's much harder for a marsupial because we've never done it before. But for mm. humans with IVF and stem cells and everything, it's like it's, it's, we, we have everything in place to do it. So it is the ethical barriers there that are stopping people from doing it, but it's certainly very possible to do that. Okay, so where along the process is this, as far as with the Tasmanian tiger? Is it theory right now, or has work begun to get us to the point where it would be a real thing? Yeah, so we've sequenced the entire genome. We've got that bit done. We've got our closest living relative. We started editing its cells. We've figured out how to turn those cells into stem cells. And then we're figuring out how to then make embryos from those cells. So we're, we're really progressing quite quickly forward on this, you know. And then the big announcement that we had yesterday was we've partnered with this huge uh, US biotech company called Colossal, who were working on the woolly mammoth. And we're both working in parallel now in this partnership to try and really drive these technologies forward to bring some of these species back. Hmm. And, and what sort of, do we know what sort of time frame it might be before there is a, an animal? You know, I think in 10 years' time, like in a decade, we'll be looking at recreating, like having all of our editing cells done and having that point of having our, our Tasmanian tiger uh, genome in place and looking at that now creating whole animals to bring back. That's a, it's, it's such a fascinating story. And, it's, and again, the fact that we've, even though it's fiction, the fact that we've, as you say, in the dinosaur realm, seen this, it, it makes it plausible, I think, a lot more plausible, even though that was fiction. We, we've, we've yeah. been, we can imagine, we can picture what it might look like. That makes it uh, believable. Listen, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Andrew Pass, professor at University of Melbourne, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thank you for this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.